studies together. Well, last Lord's Day, we looked together at the heart of Christian discipleship from verses 23 through 45, emphasizing that that every Christian disciple is called to a daily abandonment of self, uh, undivided tension toward the voice of Jesus, humble dependence upon God, and also a mind that is always focused on the gospel. Uh, Today we pick up in verse 46, and it continues with this theme of Christian discipleship. But this time, we're not so much looking at the heart of Christian discipleship as we are the hindrances to discipleship. What is it that hinders us from following Christ, from growing in Christ? What hinders us from becoming more and more like Christ. And you'll remember last Sunday, which is discipleship. Discipleship is becoming more and more like Christ. So so what are the hindrances in my life today, right now, that are hindering me from becoming more and more like Jesus? Well, let's read about these things and then uh, look at them together. Luke chapter 9 and verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Some of you are thinking, man, the Bible is so applicable. My wife and I had an argument on the way to church this morning. And here the first verse we read is about an argument, all right? Well, it is applicable. It meets us in every area of our life. So here are the disciples. An argument rises among them about which one of them is the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holds and Birds have the air of birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is so kind. He he is so patient 
and merciful and loving. It's truly remarkable when you, when you consider how consumed we are with ourselves. Even the 12 apostles. Men, I remind you, who have been walking with Jesus are still struggling with self-preoccupation, self-consumption. They seem to constantly fight this battle of preferring themselves, positioning themselves, and even promoting themselves. They are so incredibly self-consumed. But so are we. Pride and self-preoccupation is a sin that emanates from every human heart. No one had to teach us to be consumed with ourselves. We are, by nature, sinners who are ego-driven and self-centered. Yet, Jesus is so patient he is so merciful with us as we constantly turn our thoughts and our actions inward on ourselves. As we think about the hindrances to our discipleship, I, I want to get the big idea of this section of Scripture that Jesus is revealing here to you. I, I want this to just resonate in your minds as we rehearse this over and over and over again over the next little while. The greatest hindrance to discipleship is an overestimation of self and an underestimation of God. That is the greatest hindrance to discipleship. It's the greatest hindrance in your life. An overestimation of ourselves and an underestimation of God. I, I, I want all of us, including me, to see this morning how self-consumed mentalities in our life can create a hindrance to our discipleship. And the Lord shows us four cases of this. The first one being arrogancy. Arrogancy. We see this in verses 46 through 48. And the fact that this conversation in the, among the disciples is taking place when it, when it does is absolutely amazing to me. Because if you'll remember last Sunday, the voice of God had just rebuked Peter for suggesting that Jesus was lucky to have him present with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then... Jesus confronted the other disciples when he came down to the foot of the mountain because they took the empowerment that God had given them for ministry, which was intended for the glory of God, and they twisted it while he was gone and made it all about themselves. I mean, these are things that had just happened. And for Peter and the rest of the disciples... What a humbling conversation that must have, or shall we say, should have been for all of them. In fact, Jesus goes from rebuking them for their pride to speaking to them about his crucifixion, which in and of itself is a subject of humility. 
But then we come to verse 46, on the heels of this rebuke. And what we read here is that an argument arose among them, Jesus excluded. An argument arose among the 12 about which one of them was the greatest. They are absolutely clueless. They have no grasp on the humility of Jesus' impending cross. Instead of being humbled by the gospel, they're now arguing about which one of them is most important to Jesus. And I read this and I think to myself, what is wrong with you people? You're with Jesus. You're with Jesus in his physical presence and you're thinking about which one of you is the greatest. What's wrong with you? But then immediately when I think about that, I have to hit the brakes. Or let me say, the Holy Spirit hits the brakes in my own heart. Has anyone in this room not wondered about their own importance? Has anyone among our church family today struggled comparing yourself with someone else? Can I just say that the drive to be the best is not always a healthy drive? It can lead to jealousy when others have accomplished what we haven't. It leads to criticism as we seek to find fault in other people's successes. And ultimately, it leads to emptiness, especially when we begin to discover that winning or being the best doesn't produce true self-worth. It's an empty pursuit. It's an unhealthy drive. And I know it's the Lord's day and many of us need to be encouraged and I pray that we will, but I just need to remind all of us from time to time that we are nobodies. We are nobodies. God says the earth is his footstool. We, we are nobodies. But like the disciples, we too often think we're actually somebody. And here we are being confronted by God's word about the seeds of arrogance in our hearts. Seeds that are planted by an overestimation of self and an underestimation of God. They're arguing about who's most important to Jesus. So Jesus stops. It's interesting. He takes up a little child, and while he is either holding this child or grasping him in some way, he looks to his disciples and he says in verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I don't know about you, and some of you like to read ahead knowing where we're going on Sunday, so perhaps you've read this and you're thinking to yourself at first glance that this just doesn't make sense. The flow's not natural. We might would call this a, a head scratcher, if you will. What, what I mean by that is they're talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus responds by saying, who 
says you're even in. That's the only thing he can mean here. Now, after all, we do know, they don't know yet, but we do know that one of the 12 is a fraud, right? So, so what he does in this moment is he takes some time to remind them at the very foundation of true conversion to Christ. True salvation is a humble spirit. One is converted when with childlike faith they begin to follow Jesus. You're arguing about who you think's most important to me. You're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. But who says you're even in? The only way you get in is if you humble yourself like this little child. And then he goes on. For he was least among you all as the one who is great. He who is least is actually the one who is great. It's one of the many paradoxes of the Christian life. The way up is down. To become great is to become small. It's not promoting ourselves. It's humbling ourselves. And perhaps John the Baptist said it best. John chapter 3 and verse 30 he must increase, I must decrease. Now let's be honest. I don't believe there's a Christian in this room who would argue with the first half of John's statement. We want Jesus to increase. We want his glory to be exalted. We want the world to know all about him. Increase, Lord. Increase, Lord. But we're not so quick to play the, or pray the player, uh, help me decrease in the meantime. No, no, no. We want him to increase and we want us to increase with him. John says you got it backwards. If he's going to increase in your life, you have to decrease. If he's going to get bigger, you have to get smaller. If it's all going to be about him, then it can't ever be about you. It may be that the pride of arrogance, the desire to be great, is the hindrance to your present season of discipleship. Listen to me, church family. Arrogance is an overestimation of self and an underestimation of God. We're talking about the hindrances of discipleship, how it is we get so self-consumed. We do it when the seed of arrogance springs up. Secondly, not only arrogancy, but jealousy. Jealousy. Now, these hurt, don't they? <laughs> if you think it's bad hearing it, try preaching it. It ain't fun to wrestle in my study all week this week having to say to you what's wrong with me. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? We are so consumed with ourselves. We are so consumed with ourselves and our present life that the weeds of arrogance and jealousy are constantly springing up inside of us. In verse 49, the disciples actually see someone casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. This wasn't a rumor, by the way. 
they actually witnessed it with their own eyes. And the context here is that this man, whoever he was, was doing the right thing with the right motive. But John, interestingly enough, all of a sudden becomes the spokesperson for the group. Does anybody else find that interesting? It's, it's, it's as if Peter's like, look, I've been yelled at enough this week. I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> so all of a sudden, John decides, all right, I'll talk for a while, Peter. You just kind of hang back here. And John, John speaks up, and he says, on behalf of the other 11, verse 49, uh, Jesus, we tried to stop him. Because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus responds, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. I feel like we need to get something out of the way because I want to make it very clear that it's a misrepresentation of this passage to suggest that it is inferring Jesus approves of all forms of cooperation regardless of theological error over essential doctrine. It's wrong, a misrepresentation of Christ to, to suggest that even in heresy we are to embrace those who are doing good things if they use Jesus' name. Not so. That's not what this is about. This man was theologically strong. He was serving purely in the name of Jesus, and that is affirmed by Jesus himself because he looks to his disciples and says, hey, he's not against us. So if the man was doing something theologically wrong, I think Jesus would have commended their stopping him. But that's not the case. Jesus affirmed this, this man's doing the right thing. He's doing what I want all disciples to do. He, he's not against us. So it's not an issue of doctrinal or theological purity. So we have to go back to this question. What's the issue? Well, it's jealousy. These men were overestimating themselves and underestimating God's desire to use everyone who follows him. Now, they indicate it was first because this man wasn't in their group. We call this tribalism. Tribalism is when we think our group is always right and the other groups are always wrong. I've witnessed this so much. And in transparency, have even fallen prey to it myself. Christians, ministers, who pledge an unhealthy loyalty to a label or a leader, it will inevitably generate a sinful us versus them mentality. Friends, that's, that's tribalism. Tribalism. Joe, Joe Joseph said it like this, idolizing one group and villainizing another group reflects a poor doctrine of sin and a lack of awareness about our own hearts. That was the problem in Corinth, wasn't it? First Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, look, there's jealousy. There's, there's strife among you. You can't stop fighting with each other. Even though you're in the same church. 
You're studying from the same gospel. You're on the same mission. You worship the same Jesus, but you can't get along. And you know why you can't get along? Because this group says I'm with Piper, and this group says I'm with MacArthur, and this group says I'm with DeYoung, and this group says I'm with whoever. What he said is, hey, you got some over here with Paul and some over here who are with Apollos. That still happens today. We idolize and we villainize others theologically. They don't cross their T's or dot their I's like we do about the end times. And so we think they're not with us. This happens collegiately. Well, I graduated from such and such college. Or I went here. It happens politically, right? You got your Republicans, you got your Democrats. We're always villainizing, idolizing. It even happens ecclesiastically with churches. And all of this happens because our mindset is, well, they're not in my group. They're not in my tribe. So, so, so the first issue that they at least acknowledge is that they're willing to stop this man because he wasn't in their group. We also see that this jealousy revolved around someone else's success. Now, I I believe with all my heart, this is actually the main reason. I think the whole tribe thing was a cover for what was really going on here. Because what was it that the disciples had just asked Jesus? Um, Lord, why couldn't we cast that demon out? That just happened. Why couldn't we cast the demon out now? Now, interestingly enough, someone outside their group is found to be more successful than they presently are. That man, again, whoever he was, is successfully casting out demons during a season which they had failed to do the same. We have to examine ourselves. Are you critical and jealous when it comes to other people's successes? Do you become critical or jealous when it comes to others' blessings? Can we just all acknowledge that this is a battle? Okay, maybe you don't want to, but I will. This is a battle. The 16th century Spanish reformer said this, as far as jealousy is concerned, many experience displeasure when they see others in possession of spiritual goods that God has not entrusted to them. Does it bother you when others are able to accomplish measures that you have not accomplished? Does it bother you when others are able to serve in ways that you've never been asked to serve? Being consumed with ourselves is a cancerous sin. And those of us who serve in pastoral ministry struggle deeply with it. It's our besetting sin. I will identify among those ministers who are by nature suspicious, insecure, 
and often jealous. We see other ministries doing better than we're doing or maybe even doing differently than we're doing and we're quick to see these type of emotions surface in our heart. And if I were fully transparent, it's even true when I see two people at the Laurel Baptist Church whispering in the corner. <laughs> I was laughing at Malcolm. Malcolm and Yvette were carrying on a conversation in the back. Uh, uh, two of our Spanish-speaking people uh, were carrying on a conversation in Spanish at the back on Wednesday nights. And I looked at him. I said, I just have this strange feeling you're talking about me. <laughs> and you can do it all night because I would not have a clue about what you're saying. I mean, we, we pastors, just to be quite honest with you, we've been shot at so many times. We suspiciously sleep when two people are whispering in a corner that they're loading up their guns. Now, now look, ask any lawman or military man. All it takes is to get shot at one time, and they're on guard for the rest of their lives. Now call it what you will, spiritual PTSD or what. I do think it's motivated by spiritual things. At least my conscience is clear about that in my own heart. But it's sinful nonetheless. And if I had a room full of pastors this morning, I would park here a very long time and just rear back and let it go. But let's talk about our church for a moment. Because in our church, if we are not careful, we can allow these same suspicions, these same jealousies, these same insecurities to hinder our discipleship because we get more focused on our personal success than we are the glory of God's kingdom worldwide. I need to stop here, but in God's grace, may he remove any spirit of jealousy in our hearts toward our brothers and sisters who are faithful to the word and who are faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may not be in our tribe, but if they are for Jesus, we are for them. Hindrances to self or, or to discipleship, things that are self-consuming in our lives. Arrogance, jealousy, thirdly, vengeance. Vengeance. This is in verse 51 through, 40, 51 through 56. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but we see two groups of people talked about here. We have, obviously, the Jews with Jesus and his disciples, and then we have the Samaritans. But you need to know that the Samaritans despised the Jews, and the Jews didn't feel much differently about them. In fact, the Samaritans actually set up a rival temple where they worshipped instead of going to Jerusalem and worshiping. The Samaritans even published their own version of the Pentateuch instead of following the sacred scriptures of the Pentateuch that God had given the people. But let's not be too easy on the Jews because I want to tell you about what the Jews would do. This is going to blow your mind. The Jews, on the other hand, would actually pray publicly in their synagogues that God would never give the Samaritans eternal life. That's how they would pray. So it probably surprised the disciples to see that Jesus was making plans to visit Samaria. And one of the reasons he's doing so is because it was the quickest route to Jerusalem. 
So in verse 53, we read that as they came through Samaria, the people did not receive him. They did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, it's an interesting phrase. His face was set toward Jerusalem. It's, it's not only descriptive of where he was headed, but who he was and how he worshiped. And based upon those things, Samaria totally rejected Jesus. They wanted this foreigner out of their land immediately. So they gave him no lodging. They gave him no rest or refuel. They totally rejected him and kicked him out. And since there was already centuries of tension between the Samaritans and Jews, this really ticked the disciples off, especially the sons of thunder, James and John. Notice what they said in verse 54. They said, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, the fact that they actually thought they could do this is a little presumptuous to me. <laughs> Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and take these people out? Now, you, you, you may not have prayed the exact same thing before, but I know you've probably thought it a time or two. Now, granted, they were most likely, I think, thinking of Elijah with this suggestion. But it wasn't the same situation. It was a little presumptuous on their part to think they could do it. I also recognize here that the suggestion also reveals that they still fully don't get why Jesus has come. He did not come to destroy. He came to save. So here they are on their way to Jerusalem, and they still don't understand the fullness of the mission yet. And I think that's what happens to us sometimes. When our attitudes get out of check toward others, when our disposition is one of distance and hatred and vengeance, it is immediately because we've forgotten what the mission is. We've forgotten the mission. Jesus didn't come to destroy. He came to save. And then let me just say that it is the sole prerogative of the triune God to determine who, when, and how vengeance will be inflicted. Romans chapter 12, listen to these very convicting verses. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, I mean really think about what you're going to do to be honorable in the sight of all people toward them. That means don't act too quickly. Don't always say what's on your mind. Give it some time. Write it down. Pray over it. Have someone to read what you're thinking. Give some thought about how you're going to do the honorable thing in front of all people, regardless of what they've said or done to you. Well, this is challenging stuff, isn't it? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, God is God and I am not. 
and I am not. And when we get those things mixed up, we are headed for trouble. He says, to the contrary, again, I'm still in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. If he's thirsty, I want you to give him something to drink. For if by doing good, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. You overcome evil with good. Jesus simply rebuked them. Because taking matters into our own hands, acting out in vengeance toward those who have hurt us, these things are a result of pride. It's a result of self-preoccupation, overestimating ourselves while underestimating the sovereign purposes of God. And it is a hindrance to our discipleship. In fact, James said it in James chapter 1 and verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, whenever you are angry, you are not living righteously. Anger and vengeance is a hindrance to becoming more like Jesus. All right, we have one more, and I'm glad we have more and more because I can hardly take the first two. Arrogance, jealousy, vengeance, selfishness. Selfishness. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you. Wherever you go. Now, maybe, maybe that's your sentiment today. I, I will follow Jesus. I will follow Jesus. And, and you know what, Pastor? I will follow him wherever. And then Jesus says in verse 58, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All right? You want to follow me, Jesus says? You want to follow me wherever? Well, how about there? There. The place where it is most difficult to follow me. You willing to follow me there? If it means you have to minister the way that I'm currently ministering in, where there's not even a place to lay my head, I don't even own my own home. You want to follow me wherever? How about there? How about the there that is difficult, the there in your life that's difficult, whether, it, whether it's at work, at home, whatever it is, are you willing to follow him there? Hey, it's easy to follow him here. Are you willing to follow him out there? That's what Jesus is saying. Where it's most difficult. Are you willing to follow him without demanding comfort? Because you, you seem to want it all laid out for you, nice and comfortably. That seems to be what Jesus is saying here. You want it all nice. You want it all comfortable. You want all the frou-frou. But that's not where following me always takes you. It's not always nice. It's not always easy. It's not always comfortable. If you want to follow me, you got to be willing to follow me there on the difficult path, in the rough seasons, when it's all falling apart and it feels like nobody likes you and everyone's against you. you got to be willing to follow me even in that season of your life too. Following Jesus is not a life of ease. It's a life of sacrifice. Too many of us are only willing to follow him where it's most comfortable. Because comfort is more important to us than Christ. Well, to another he said, verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I need, I need you to understand Jewish context here. This was not an insensitive prohibition regarding this man's uh, the, the, the father's funeral of this man. 
What the man was actually saying in Jewish context was this. When my parents die, Jesus, I get this huge inheritance. <laughs> and, and if you're okay with it, man, I want to follow you, but now, now's, not, not, now's not the best time. I need to wait till daddy dies. And when daddy dies, I have to be there because if I'm not there, then I'm not, I got to be there. And I need to receive all the money and the land and the houses and, 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 and everything that he has to give me. And when I get all of that, I'm going to follow you. was a desire for convenience. Some of you are saying, I'll follow Jesus whenever. Well, what about now? What about now when it's not so convenient? When it doesn't make sense? When the finances don't add up? When the time's not calculating like you would hope it would? Are you willing to follow him right now? Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, he wasn't being insensitive. It wasn't like the man couldn't go back and tell his family goodbye. That's not the point. The, the, the point is to follow Jesus is to follow him however he demands. And the context of this passage suggests that this man still was struggling with his commitments. And Jesus says, you need to be fully committed to me, even more so than your own family. You see, Jesus demands that we follow him as Lord, that he is first, not second, that he's the forethought, not the after. Thought. The first man's selfishness was related to comforts. The second man, conveniences. Now this man, commitments. Commitments. And isn't it true how many are willing to follow Jesus until Jesus tells them how to follow him? Can I just say this morning briefly to those who are holding on to comforts and conveniences and commitments which are hindering your discipleship? This Christian life was never intended to be a life of ease. It's promised to be a battle. It's a battle. Now there are wins along the way. Don't get me wrong. But the final victory will never happen in this life. The final victory comes in the life to come. And in order for God's work to have its way in our lives for his glory as he has purposed it, we must be willing to selflessly make sacrifices. Sacrifices. Stop negotiating with Jesus on the basis of what you selfishly have to have in order to follow him, in order to do his will. Start learning to make sacrifices at the end of the day it all comes down to this how important do you think Jesus really is isn't that really the heart of all of our issues how important how important do you think Jesus really is well look at what you're sacrificing take a look at what you're giving or better yet what you're not giving Some of us young people, we have it all planned out. We want to be a member of this club. We want to go to this location. We want to, hey, when's the last time you said, you know what? Maybe we need to make some sacrifices in our life for the kingdom of God to be first in every area of our life, including how I spend my money.
T take a look at what you give or what you don't give. Take a look at what you're sacrificing or what you're holding on to. Take a look about how and when you're serving. And then that will tell you how important you think Jesus is. I take it that many of you won't come shake my hand this morning. And I get it. I don't even like myself at this point. But this is biblical discipleship. And one of the greatest problems we have in following Jesus is we love me too much. Now in closing, and I mean it. These are the hindrances, arrogance, jealousy, vengeance, selfishness. But how do we fight these hindrances? Let me give you, let me give you two things and we're going to pray. Number one, see the truth about yourself. That's the first step to fighting it. See the truth about yourself. We are always the last person to see the sinfulness of our pride, aren't we? You've got to see the truth. Do you constantly compare yourself with others? Are you insecure and suspicious about everything going on around you? Do you get overzealous and angry about those things that only God can handle? Do you most often only do what best benefits you? That, all of that. It's, it's a sin. It's a sin. And we need to look ourselves in the mirror of God's word and say, Lord, reveal the truth. Help me to see who I really am. And then we need to see the greatness of God. The greatness of God. How great is he? He's humble. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's the most important person in the universe. And when we truly see his greatness, we will humble ourselves and submit to the work that he desires to do in our hearts, but not until we really see his greatness. It's the greatest hindrance in my life right now, an overestimation of self and an underestimation of God. As we sang a moment ago, it is time to take your eyes off of yourself and turn them to Jesus. Turn them to Jesus. Let's stand together for prayer.